Do you struggle with what it means to be successful in your retirement? Trust us, you're not alone. Welcome to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Here, you'll go in-depth with Guidance Point Advisors Investment Consultants to hear stories about how retirees in Maine are navigating a successful retirement. Get insight into the inevitable challenges of aging and define what a successful retirement looks like. Welcome, everybody, to the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. Uh, we, uh, so my name is Ben Smith, uh, and I'm joined by my two co-hosts, uh, Abby Duty and Curtis Wister, the Apple and Google to my BlackBerry. All right. <laughs> how are you guys right. doing today? Good. good. How are you, Ben? We're, we're good. Uh, we're recording. This is end of May now, so we're, we're still doing a little sheltering in place, which is why you can kind of see some casual backdrops uh, yeah. behind us. But we've been talking a lot about themes and, and challenges that, uh, that retirees have as they're entering retirement. And in Maine, right, is Maine obviously is, is the point of the show and, and challenges that Mainers are facing. Well, one of the things that we just find a lot is, look, Maine uh, is a pretty rural state, right? Very spread out mm-hmm. um, in terms of their service centers um, up I-95. So you can kind of find that. But there's a lot of rural parts of the state, and and as we hear from our lot of our clients, they have a stated goal of of I want to stay in my house and in, in the home that I'm living in for as long as possible. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we're we're pretty mobile in our younger years, we're able to do things and access certain services and stores and resources that can become more of a challenge as as we age. And again, where you kind of have this these two conflicting ideas of hey, I want to stay in my home as long as possible or the house that I love to be in. Mm-hmm. But maybe I'm not um, not as accessible um, because of where I am located in the state. So technology. Uh, so we had this conversation with uh, a colleague we work with over at uh, Hartford Funds, uh, Greg Siever. So Greg, uh, Greg and our team, we're, we're having a really great conversation about, hey, you know what? You guys got to talk to John Deal. John is the technology, uh, uh, one of the technology guys. He's a strategic markets for Hartford Funds. And we have a relationship with MIT Age Lab. So MIT Age Lab really studies um, a lot of uh, the effects on aging, and they talk a lot about technology. We said, well, wouldn't that be perfect of blending that vantage point mm-hmm. to this challenge we see our client, clients facing? And, and that was the premise for today's show. We want to have John on and just kind of have that conversation. So with that, uh, so John, I want to bring you on. Welcome to the show. I appreciate uh, your time today. Thanks for having me, Ben. Yeah. So John, with our show, uh, we always like to start with uh, you as a, our guest, right? Is And you have this specific level of expertise and what we like about where your role is at Hartford Funds. Again, you're kind of overseeing this this uh, partnership with MIT Age Lab. But you have our vantage point from the financial planning end as you're kind of seeing the research come out. So you're, you're a good kind of bridge between our two worlds. And, and with that, we wanted to just kind of hear a little bit more about you first in terms of your background, where did you grow up and kind of your kind of building towards your career path? Sure. Great. Thanks. Thanks for the question. So uh, I grew up in suburban Philadelphia about an hour and actually it was more rural suburbs of Philadelphia, about an hour and a half northwest. Born and raised there, was raised basically by my mom and my two brothers. And that plays into uh, my career choice because of what I'll share with you next. I was uh, 
like most college attendees, not really sure of my future. I bounced around to a couple of different majors. I started in computer science. You know, that didn't really do it for me. I bounced into accounting, which I loved, except when you made a mistake, it would take hours to find it. And I Mm -hmm. honestly wasn't that hard of a worker. Uh, But I really got impassioned around economics and economic theory in particular. And I really started to take an interest in the financial markets. And I really didn't know where I was going to go or what I was going to do. But when I graduated, I was recruited to uh, a company that was eventually taken over by the Hartford Uh, but not really knowing what path to follow. And about that time, my father's mother had become ill with uh, dementia slash Alzheimer's. And as many of you know, Alzheimer's cannot be accurately diagnosed until after death. They can, you know, kind of take a guess that that's what it is. But my father really wasn't around. And I became really the primary decision maker for my grandmother, along with my two brothers. Uh, At that time, I was a registered representative, so I was technically a a stockbroker. I was, I think, had gotten interested in the whole financial planning processes and and was doing my coursework in my CFP, the Certified Financial Planner uh, coursework, and it all seemed to come together at the same time. Uh, Here was my grandmother needing help where no planning had been done. Although I will share this with you guys. She did have a financial advisor and her financial advisor had worked for a nationally known firm, a very Mm. big firm. Mm. And uh, all through my high school and college years, she could say nothing but great things about her advisor, Frank. And then, uh, you know, when she got ill and we had to make some financial decisions, I contacted her advisor and just said, Hey, thanks for all you've done for my grandmother. But you know, she doesn't have all that much money and it's probably not going to last long. I'll help with the account. I'll take it over because we're basically going to have to spend it down. And he said, well, that's great, John, except your grandmother has invested 100% in limited partnerships and they're illiquid, right? So I I had no experience in that area, but I got an education really, really quickly. And let me tell you folks, uh, I came away from this experience saying, if this could happen to my grandmother, right? Where she's not getting good financial advice from somebody she trusted. How many times is this happening, you know, all over our country? And it kind of became my career mission. And John, just to interrupt you real quick on limited partnerships, right? For those that are listening, go, I don't even know what that is. Well, one of the big features of limited partnerships is they're not liquid, right? Is, right. You can't, you, you you go to withdraw the money to take care of your grandmother and exactly. just, that's just not how they're set up. They're not like a stock that you can trade throughout the day. So essentially what we were told was, you know, hey, I know the statement says she has X amount of dollars, but she can't get any of it. And now you got to understand, we were in a very short time frame trying to get my grandmother the care that she needed. And honestly, I kind of felt lost and I was irritated and I was angry. And uh, by the way, we did settle with that company who did not serve my grandmother well. But mm-hmm. I came away from the experience saying, if this could happen to my grandmother, how many other people is this happening to? Yeah. And I, as I said, I was experiencing the the Certified Financial Planner program where it's not just about the investments, right? It's looking at all aspects of a person's life, be it tax, estate planning, investment planning. Investment planning, in fact, is just one one segment of the, of the coursework. 
And, uh, and it really gave me a launching pad along with my position at Hartford Funds where I was just learning and learning and learning that, you know, our industry is about a lot more than just investments. In fact, it usually investments to me is usually the it's it's part of the solution. But the first thing is understanding the story. Right. How do people think about money? What were those life events that caused them to think the way they do about how money is managed and how much risk they want to take and what it is that they're planning to do? And that, to me, is the most energizing part of our industry. It's hearing the stories, solving the problems or at least presenting solutions that you can work through with people. Kind of, well, what works best in your situation? Why do you think that? Because unless you know, we as advisors are on the same page with our clients, you know, that the, the chances of success of an overall financial plan, I think falter a little bit, right? We need to all believe in and buy into the plans that we put in place. And I love that, John, because, you know, when we talk about that and Abby and I, with our, with our client meetings too, because you talk, you, you hear a lot about the, the industry is all about, well, you know, let me tell you about my hammer. You know, this hammer, it, it pounds a lot of nails. And it, you know, right. it never misses and it does really great. And, you know, it's, it's actually built uh, lots of houses. So, and then here's my screwdriver. The screwdriver is a really great screwdriver. And you go through the, well, we talk all about our tools, right? But sometimes we, we, we fail to take a step back and say, well, what type of house are we trying to build, right? Mm-hmm. Are, are we trying to build this grand mansion? Is it just a, a one floor, you know, 900 square foot? What are we doing? What are you trying to accomplish? And then you apply the right tool in the right situation to get there. And, so, and I know that's a very simple analogy, but, you know, I think that's, that's where, you know, what you said is right, is investment planning is just one thing, right? Is right. We have to get to know our clients and we have to spend time with them to hear where they're going, what their goals are, what their fears are, what they're trying to accomplish. And, and which is a, the premise for this show, right, is these are all fears that people have and we want to find ways to address them and, and having folks like yourself. So I uh, appreciate that, that backstory because that's, that, that's very much uh, synonymous with what we try to do with our clients, too. Oh, my pleasure. Yeah. And that that led me into a natural relationship with the MITH lab, as you mentioned, because really I spent a number of years in my career, maybe the first half of my career, actually designing financial products, working with teams to design 401k plans and design mutual funds and design annuity products. And so I got to see it from the perspective of the manufacturer and I had a breadth of exposure, Uh, but we wanted to leverage an existing relationship that our parent company, the Hartford, the big insurer in Connecticut had with the MIT age lab where they were studying driving and what they could do to make uh, aging drivers safer on the road, both from a technology standpoint and even in terms of having family conversations about when is the right time to give up the keys? You know, mm-hmm. when are mom or dad at risk or putting others at risk? But we decided to take that relationship, start a kind of a new path of study all around longevity and retirement and retirement planning. And so many of the issues that we just talked about, right, kind of that broad space really was more important to address that before we came out with our, our solutions, right? How do you come up with a solution, as you were saying, before we know what the problems are? So at the MIT Age Lab really helps us to uncover the anticipated needs that they believe we as Americans will have maybe before we even know that we're going to have them. So I know I know we're on the topic of MIT Age Lab, but could you just kind of back up a little bit in terms of 
who they are and again for for those that maybe don't know what it's about how it started and kind of how how that kind of developed what it is today can you kind of go through that sure absolutely so the MIT age lab is located in MIT school of engineering in Cambridge Massachusetts and about it's about 40 researchers but they're not all engineers as you know MIT is known for engineering but sociologists psychologists physiologists obviously engineers all studying what it means to live to age 80, 90, 100, 100 plus in terms of what technologies will we be desiring? How will our lifestyles change? And what products will we need in the future? So, uh, you know, helping, for example, and this is one of the greatest benefits, the MIT Age Lab is working not just with financial services companies. In fact, they work with many different industries and companies automobile industry, healthcare industry, retail industry, kind of identifying the trends that are going to shape what we'll be doing years from now, working on technologies or incorporating technologies that can help. And uh, and really, it's that whole study around longevity that we began with MIT. We were actually one of the founding sponsors of the Age Lab back in 1999. Wow. So it's been around quite a while. And as I mentioned, our initial interest was as an auto insurer. The Hartford is the auto insurer for the AARP, mm. right? And we recognized years ago that accidents and, and aging were kind of running in parallel. And so the question began, what are some of the things that could be done to make drivers safer on the road? Well, on a different vein, we now look at the financial services industry and we use the research from MIT twofold. One is to educate financial advisors about the challenges and opportunities that come about by living to much later ages. And secondly, we take time to educate their clients, right? We take time mm -hmm. to educate just everyday people about what are things that maybe you haven't thought of yet that the researchers at MIT say you may need to because our future is going to look a lot different than it did for our parents or our grandparents. Gotcha. So I know, and you kind of covered it there, John, you mentioned initially your partnership, and by you, I mean the Hartford, uh, with the MIT Age Lab started sort of on the auto industry. Can you kind of fast forward to kind of that partnership today and kind of, I know, again, you touched on it a little bit with the financial services, but kind of what does that partnership look like um, kind of in depth today? Right. So, uh, so the partnership with uh, Hartford and the property casualty side of our business still continues to this day. Oh, okay. in, two, in 2002, we actually started an entire new vein of research, which I, I was asked to head back then mm. and have been doing so ever since. So essentially, you know, what we're studying is not necessarily, you know, what investment portfolios or how to construct investment portfolios that best serve people. Because look, everybody is different. Mm. What what we're observing is what are the major life events and what are the approaches that people are taking to things such as retirement, uh, death of a, of a spouse or a loved one, staying in our own homes. For example, mm. you know, that many Americans today, and maybe we'll get a chance to touch on this later in the podcast, many people still think that my only choice is stay in my own home or move to a nursing home. It's like a binary yeah. choice. It's yes. not, if, if we live now to age 90, MIT actually says we may move as many times after age 50 as we moved prior, right? So mm -hmm. how, do we how do we educate people? The term we use is how do we successfully navigate longevity, mm -hmm. right? How do yeah. we, and look, nobody has a crystal ball. We don't know what's coming, 
But the more we know about the decisions we may face in the future, maybe the better we can prepare. Because I think, as as you all, I'm sure, agree, really our job as advisors is to try and move the decision point away from the moment of crisis, Mm. right? We can all say, that's never going to happen to me, that I'm never going to have to move out of this home. I'm never going to have to deal with this or deal with that. And then it happens. And now people have three weeks to make decisions. And Mm -hmm. that's when mistakes happen. And those decisions are oftentimes emotionally laden versus having the time to think rationally about what options I have Mm -hmm. and what would be best in my situation. So that's really where our research goes, goes to today. So the way it works today in our relationship is that I have a team of six who are on my team who are constantly, when we're not a virtual world, spread out around (laughs) the United States, meeting with advisors, meeting with clients. But now we do it virtually, but Mm -hmm. that helps us shape our research agenda. What questions do people want answers to or are they seeking so that we can develop research around that to help people understand what's changing and how to anticipate those changes? We really like how the MIT lab has created, you know, having a successful retirement. Um, That's something that we talk about a lot. That's what this podcast is all about. Um, And you have found three um, questions that help retirees visualize retirement. Can we talk about those a little bit more in depth and tell us um, about ever evolve, ever evolving retirement? Sure. So yeah, the first question is who will change my light bulbs? Yeah. So Abby, you bring up a great point, right? Because what I usually say to folks is I'm going to share with you three questions that the researchers at the age lab say are predictive of your future quality of life. And I'll, I'll warn people, I'll say, before I launch these on you, they're going to underwhelm you with their simplicity <laughs> coming from the rocket scientists at MIT, right? But So think about that. Who's going to change my light bulbs? And usually when we talk about these questions, I'll ask the question and you'll see some people look at me like, what in the world is he talking about? And other people will chuckle a little bit. And after about 20 seconds, the wheels start to turn and they start to think. So who's going to change my light bulbs is the first question about a successful retirement. And it deals with uh, the subject of your home. So 90% of Americans believe that they will age in their own homes. But how many have really spent even 15 or 20 minutes thinking about what changes, what modifications may be required Mm -hmm. in order to make that home livable, not only from a comfort standpoint, but from a safety standpoint Mm -hmm. into our later years? So, you know, when we think about this, I I could share with you the number one category of -of out-of-pocket spending for American households over age 65 are housing-related expenses, right? Now, they don't occur on an average basis, right? One month, the roof leaks. Two months later, the hot water heaters blow up. Um, But it takes up about a third of -of out-of-pocket spending for American families over age 65. One of the fastest-growing categories in that is home modifications. So when we think about home modifications, I could list the top 10 for you. Things like level entryways, kitchen and bath improvements, storage within easy reach, all 10 meant to prevent one thing in the home. Falling. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Falling. Yeah. It's because a fall can change the plan in a heartbeat. Right. But as we think about, you know, I want to stay in my home. Okay. What is it that we have to do to really make that home safe? And that eventually trees back to financial considerations, or I I hesitate to say, it's even a question of, will my home be able to accommodate me as I age? Mm. I'll just share with you all as an example. I still have a home in Pennsylvania. It's a home that my wife and I bought 
years ago. We raised our three children in it. It was built in 1860. It's got foot thick, foot thick stone walls. It does not have a single full bathroom on the first floor. It does not have a single bedroom on the first floor. As my wife and I thought about what comes next for us, as much as we love the home, we hope the kids enjoy it someday because we're not going to be able to age there. Mm. So that began the question of, okay, if we're not going to be able to age here, what is the next step for us? And it allowed us to begin planning. John, I'll I'll, uh, kind of uh, share a personal story with you here too. So my grandfather passed away in December of 2018 um, and he was 99 years old. Wow. So he lived in his home uh, from his 20s all the way until he was 94. So you know what the thing that actually forced him out of his home? What's so he's, that? Not, he's 94 years old and there is a tree limb uh, that has dangled and it's over uh, arching on his car. So he decides on his own, he's going to take out the six foot stepladder, yep. which isn't tall enough. At 94, he's going to reach out. And he's going to start pulling on that that limb, and he's going to pull that off the tree because he's worried about that limb falling on his car. Mm-hmm. And you know what happens next? Oh yeah, broken hip. So fall, broken hip, and that was that was the last time he was going to be in his house independently living. And you know, we we ask the question, "Who's going to change your light bulbs?" Because it makes people chuckle, and it's memorable in its simplicity. Mm-hmm. But I'll often challenge. I'm sure many of your listeners that. When that light bulb goes off, uh, goes out, they're not going to the garage to even grab a stepladder. They're grabbing the nearest chair, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. They're climbing mm-hmm. onto that chair. They're doing the the one leg stretch <laughs> up with the arm. Yeah. Um, you can't do it. It's it's not worth it. And so, especially as you mentioned, for many listeners in rural locations, you know, beginning to think about who are the service providers that I'm going to be able to rely on. And by the way, many of the electricians, plumbers, and roofers that we've relied on for the past 20, 30 years, they've begun to age out of their professions, right? Mm -hmm. So how do we develop relationships or who will those providers be? And if we have children, oftentimes our children are now in different parts of the country. So it's not like they can, they know who to call either. So if we're going to stay in our homes, we, we have to begin to lay this groundwork, first of all, of assessing, is the home going to be capable of accommodating me safely? If it is, what are the things I should be thinking about, not only in terms of physical changes, but service providers that can help me manage these things to avoid some of the things that we just talked about? Yeah. And John, and to, to kind of get back to that too, is like in Maine, as you said, so Maine is actually... I, I think either the oldest or second oldest state in the nation. Right. Mm-hmm. So as we, which is we, what you just said is really insightful because it's like, Hey, we all have our friend connections and usually we are our connections and who we really relate to are usually plus or minus 10 years of our own age. Mm-hmm. So if you're hiring that carpenter that, or that handyman that, or whoever's going to go change that light bulb, more likely they're in the same situation as you. Absolutely. Right? Yeah. So it, in, in, you have kind of a brain drain that's happened from our state where you have Northern Maine people that go to Portland and then Portland people that go to Boston, right? Mm-hmm. So the, there's less young people around to do these types sort of things. So that's, I think that's some of the challenge here too is, you know, what you just said is finding those service providers that, you know, are capable and they're not in the same situation as you that, you know, that, that friend that you had always used to take care of that, you know, that shingle that's popped off or, or whatever is happening, you know, that that probably person is going to be in the same situation as you are. Yeah. And, you know, the other j- just to kind of close out this topic of who's going to change my light bulbs, you know, a lot of people will 
still have in their minds this concept of a nursing home, like the nursing homes that existed 60, 70, 80 years ago. You know, the, the continuing care retirement communities are actually kind of interesting in terms of how they're growing and the services that they offer. And I think the last stat that I saw said that the average age of entry into a uh, CCRC, into independent living, not even assisted living, was somewhere around 83 years old, right? We, we think that we're going to stay in our own homes for forever. But what happens is we find ourselves by ourselves. We have a harder time keeping up the home. Maybe we're dealing with medical issues of our own. And that's why, as I mentioned earlier, MIT now says you may move as many times after age 50 as you did prior. You may decide mm -hmm. to upsize or downsize. You may decide to live in a different part of the country, AKA Maine, right? <laughs> Where you always wanted to live, but never had a chance to when you, you were younger. You may decide to move closer to children or let's be honest, grandchildren. You may want to move away from children and grandchildren, <laughs> right? You, you may need to live with children and grandchildren. You may need the care of a care community. So we can no longer think of housing as a binary choice, either my home or, or some kind of care community. It, actually, we should think of it as a continuum. And we should always be thinking about if I'm not able to sustain myself here, what would the next step for me be? I like that. And, and, and John, just to, and I know what, again, my conversations with Greg has been is, you know, that that's a lot of what your team has been able to do is, is give us as advisors, a framework for those conversations, right? Because, you know, the more we're kind of just doing, here's your review, here's how your investments are doing. And that's the routine. And we're not talking about real issues. We're not looking down the road. So I like what you're saying there is, you know, hey, here's, here's a construct to have this conversation about, again, where are you going to live and who's going to change your light bulb is, is a really good one. So I, I love that. Can you go to the second one for us in, in terms of the, the question there? Sure. So it's how will I get an ice cream cone? You know, there, when we think about how will I get an ice cream cone, the question I want you to think about are what are the small things in your life that bring joy, right? Who are the people? What are the activities that you do on a daily basis or look forward to doing on a weekly basis or a regular basis? Now, the folks at MIT tell us, if you could tell me these four things about yourself, I could probably begin to sketch out kind of what your future would look like in terms of they'll ask, tell me where, where were you educated? And that's both college, university and vocational training or armed services experience. Why is that important? Because it may clue me in with the kind of people you'll want to associate with as you age. Hmm. Where do you recreate? What are the things that you like to do for fun? Where do you congregate? What communities or organizations are you a part of that are meaningful to you? And the last one is where do you donate? And when I say donate, I don't just mean in terms of money, right? Where do you give of your time and your talent? Those, we call them the four eights, right? Educate, recreate, congregate, and donate. If you know those four things about yourself, those are major motiv motivators. So this question, how will I get an ice cream cone is all about access. How will you continue to access those things that are most important to you as you age? Now, we didn't ask, how will you get to your doctor's appointment? Somebody mm -hmm. will figure that out. Right. We say, hey, it's a, it's a beautiful night in, in May. You want to go down the road a few miles to enjoy an ice cream cone. What would happen if you lost 
the ability to drive. Because the fact of the matter is one of the aspects of living longer is that we greatly increase the odds that at some point along life's journey, we'll lose the ability to drive. And we know that among those who've lost the ability to drive, they're twice as likely to be depressed and about five times as likely to need the care of a long-term care community. Hmm. And a lot of it goes, and it's not just about you know going wherever I want, whenever I want. It is, that's part of it. But access is freedom and freedom is quality of life, not having to rely on others to, to give us access. In fact, all of us are kind of experiencing that right now, right? In the yeah, midst of this pandemic, yeah. right? How do we access the people, the organizations that are important to us? And isolation and depression is one of the things that we really worry about, not only in the midst of this pandemic, but really when we look at an aging society, it's one of the downsides of this longevity dividend that we have is that if we don't constantly think about accessing those things that are most important to us, especially in rural communities like Maine, we run the risk of isolation from the things that make life worth living. And that's not a good place to be. Yeah. And I'll, I'll, I'll share with you too, John, and from our client base, and, and they just, a lot of times they can travel from all over and you hear that, hey, here's some, it's not uh, abnormal. And, and Abby has a place up on Island Falls, mm-hmm. right? It's not abnormal to go, hey, I'm in Island Falls and, you know, to get a certain service, I'm going to drive to Bangor. And that is a hour and 45 minute drive one way. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And it's like, I got to go to Home Depot. Well, because I got to do, Abby's doing her, you know, renovations <laughs> on her home. She's doing an hour and 45 down and an hour and 45 back. Right. So you, to, the, to the point about the ice cream cone, right, is, hey, if I want to go enjoy that ice cream cone and I have to go drive an hour to do it in retirement as I'm aging, mm-hmm. probably less likely over time that I'm able to independently do that to enjoy that sort of life. And, you know, from a financial perspective, I mentioned earlier that housing related costs are the, are the number one out of pocket average monthly expense for families over age 65. Guess what number two is? It's not health care. It's transportation, Mm -hmm. the cost of fueling, insuring, maintaining, and if I amortized it, replacing your vehicle or your fleet of vehicles, let alone the cost of airfare to visit family, friends, whatever. It makes up today about 16% on average of -of out-of-pocket spending. Number two to housing. Healthcare is actually number three in terms of -of out-of-pocket costs. Nice. And I know there's a third question I wanted you to kind of cover too in terms of uh, uh, another another item of, of uh, life to cover. Sure. So the third question is, who are you going to have lunch with? And I'll be honest with you, I think it's the most important of the three questions. Mm-hmm. It's all about your social network, right? So Dr. Joe Coughlin, who runs the Age Lab at MIT, would tell you one of the best indicators of healthy aging is the strength and the breadth of your personal relationships. You know, oftentimes I always say the best investments that you can make for retirement don't involve money, right? It's an investment in your health and an investment in your relationships, right? All those things that we nurture along along life's way, they, they mean a lot. We are human beings. We were built for social interaction. Again, all of us are getting to experience the pain of not being able to see and commune with those who are special to us, our friends and our family members right now. Well, mm-hmm. for many in, in the United States who are aging, this is the life that they will live if they don't think intentionally about building and maintaining those social networks. And this is especially an issue, folks, for the men in the United States today. 
-hmm. You see, because when a man retires from their primary place of employment, oftentimes their social network retires with them. What we see is that women away from the primary place of employment often are better at regenerating social networks around Mm -hmm. families and hobbies and things like that. But You know, for a man, the second question they're most likely to get from someone they've never met before after they're asked their name is, what do you do? do? Where, Where do you work? Where did you work? Well, I used to, I used to, I used to. Not for five to seven years anymore. 15, 20, 25 years. This is changed by longevity, right? Because when retirement, as as many people think of it today, was designed, retirement was only supposed to last five to seven years. We would work until our mid-60s. Life expectancy would take us maybe to our early 70s. But now with longevity pushing things out, one of the big things we're facing, and you may laugh at this concept, but it's boredom, right? Mm-hmm. What are we going to do to fill all these days? And that's where our social connections come in. So we challenge people to think about being intentional. And by the way, the ladies aren't off the hook here, right? But <laughs> we all need to be intentional about the social groups that we're participating in, right? And where do we, where do we recapture that sense of purpose, right? After we leave, because that's what employment does for many of us. It gives Mm -hmm. us something to achieve and a way to help others. For many of us today in America, our work, look, many of us aren't working. Some of us still work in the manual industries that take a toll on our bodies, but many are working in industries that where there's no reason they can't continue to participate to later ages. And they actually like what they do and Mm -hmm. it's their way of helping and contributing so on and so forth. So that third question, who am I going to have lunch with is Thinking about five to 10 years from now, Mm. and who will you be having lunch with? Will it be the same three people that you've had lunch with every day this week? Or are you vested in a number of different places where your friendship circle is not only deep and broad, but you're refreshing it on a regular basis? And I think that's a key point, John, because, you know, a lot of times what you find is we can sometimes get very, um, very focused on like, here's my friend and I have this one friend mm-hmm. and sometimes life, life challenges um, you, but also them as well. So if you not have, you've not kept up on your social circle and you've not kind of had uh, other, other aspects of friends and relationships and something happened to that friend where they leave or they move or health wise, something happens right? Then where are you? And, you know, that, that's, yeah. a, that's, a, that's a challenge. Well, one of the biggest tips I could give your listeners is one of the most important things to think about in terms of your social network as you age is you want to integrate younger people into your social network, mm-hmm. whether it's through a faith community, a community organization, maybe ongoing employment, wherever it is, because young people bring a certain amount of vitality and energy, but they also almost guarantee that you won't outlive your social network. Mm -hmm. Right now, you could say, well, outliving my social network beats the alternative, right, (laughs) which is not outliving. (laughs) But but I would argue not unless you've met someone that's ever lost all of those around them that make life worth living. Right. Mm -hmm. That's really a, a sad thing to observe. And so, you know, we mentioned it earlier when we were talking about service providers. Right. And oftentimes we gather around people who are kind of our same demographic in terms of age or experience, so on and so forth. The downside of that is we're all getting older and you increase the likelihood that, you know, your social network will shrink if they're the only people that you're paying attention to. So my my big word there would be intentionality, right? Being intentional about often restarting and refreshing 
those interests that you have in terms of getting connected with new people. I mean, save those close relationships, but always be refreshing it. And, and that's where, and we we had a previous episode on episode nineteen. We had um, uh, Chris McLaughlin, who's who's in charge of um, uh, kind of the uh, pediatric and children uh, uh, area at, at Northern Lake Acadia Hospital. She's talking about how do you relate to your grandchildren, right? How do mm-hmm. you, you know? So that's another way to kind of refresh your social network is also invest in your own family and find ways to continue those relationships and deepen them and strengthen them. But I, I want to actually go to another thing that you talked about on who. Will, who will I have lunch with is what are you going to do in purpose? Because we talked about employment and in, on episode 18, we had Barbara Babkirk, who's a career coach. Uh-huh. So we, we had a really great conversation with her about as I'm aging and, and some of the barriers we face in age discrimination and, and the things that people have set, uh, put on us in terms of our, our kind of their, the thoughts on our aptitudes. But what are you, what are you finding that the age lab is, is discovering about employment plans for boomers in retirement, right? Because it's maybe not as much I'm retired and I'm done is maybe there's another way to get purpose here. And then, then the follow-up to that is how is technology then impacting that, those aspects for retirees? Cause she was commenting, Barbara was commenting on how important LinkedIn is now yeah. is that the majority of, of employers are in LinkedIn and that's how they're getting talent. Mm-hmm. So where you have aged uh, is people who are aging and boomers that are not using that platform. You're having a disconnect here. So I wanted to talk to you about that. And especially where you have rural aspects of there too. Yeah. So I look, the, the retirement picture is in the mind of Joe Coughlin and the researchers at the lab. Retirement is a story, right? And it was a story that was written largely in the 1930s, 1940s, and 1950s, right? With the development mm-hmm. of social safety nets and the development of kind of our golden years, if you will, the recreational type retirement where we'd all move to Sun City, Arizona, or, you know, we'd all live next to one another and, and swim in the pool and play shuffleboard all day long and, and make golf. <laughs> and look, all those things may be a component, but here's the problem, as I mentioned earlier, that was not designed to last 20 or 25 years, mm-hmm. right? So now as we look at it, here's what we've been seeing in terms of employment is that there is a desire on behalf of many Americans to work longer. Now, when I say work longer, I don't mean working the same way we worked for the first 20, 30, 40 years of our careers. It may be working in that area, but working differently. Think about a small business owner. At some point, they probably don't want to work 60 hours a week anymore. Maybe they want to work 20 and just work on the things that they really enjoy the most, which, by the way, oftentimes may be of most value to the business. Maybe it's maintaining certain expertise or relationships, so on and so forth. And as I mentioned earlier, a lot of people get enjoyment and fulfillment from the work that they do. So one of the things that we're, we'll see, we see changing, in fact, we've done quite a, quite a deep dive on this, is that, you know, the two fastest growing segments of our population in terms of the the labor force are Americans age 65 to 74 growing at four and a half percent a year and Americans age 75 plus growing at six and a half percent a year. They by far, they outshoot every other age group. Mm -hmm. Right. And again, some of the changes that are coming, what what MIT would say about this current crisis that we're involved in, the COVID-19 crisis, is that it's not really changing things, but it's drastically accelerating them, Mm -hmm. right? So the use of technology, you mentioned LinkedIn, for example, Mm -hmm. but think about it. For many people, they may now be able to do substantial amounts of their profession 
from anywhere in the United States that yeah. they want to. Yeah. yeah, through exactly, you know, through a Zoom platform or Skype mm-hmm. or or WebEx. I'll, I'll tell you, we've had WebEx available to us as uh, presenters, me, my team and I, for the last, I don't know, five years. I couldn't even tell you when it came on the scene. We had such limited exposure to it. And then in mid-March, it's all we're doing, right? And now yeah. what people are saying is, hey, there's some really good aspects. Look, I don't want to, I, I hope sometime to come to Maine and hang out with all of you guys. <laughs> but in the meantime, there's some real positive aspects to be able to communicate with others uh, the way we're doing it right now. So people are starting to say, hey, wait a minute on this retirement thing. Maybe if I wanted to cut back in terms of travel or mm. hours in the office, maybe three days a week, I could telecommute. I could, mm-hmm. you know, I could participate that way. We're in the early stages of some research about how the COVID-19 crisis is going to change societal views on some things. And we mm-hmm. think that it's going to shift retirement in terms of enabling people to say, yeah, I may want to continue with this for quite some time, but I'm going to do it differently. Mm-hmm. The other thing that we see is that even if they don't remain in their own profession. When we say, when we ask people, what do you envision yourself doing after your primary career? We don't want to use the R word to influence what they would say, right? But you know, one of the top answers that always comes back is work. But as I said, not always the same work that I'm, maybe it's working for a cause I believe in, aka volunteering, using the skills and relationship communication skills that I build up over a, over a career, using them uh, to benefit really a, a, a purpose that I wholeheartedly believe in. That brings satisfaction as we age, right? It's mm-hmm. being able to allocate the resources that I could bring to make a difference to something that means a lot to me. So yeah, you mentioned it. The other thing that's changing is if we want to stay in our professions or we want to stay attached, we're going to have to stay educated. The other thing the age lab tells us is that technology is changing education like you wouldn't believe. In Mm -hmm. fact, uh, MIT itself participates on a platform called edX where you can Mm -hmm. now monitor courses that are being taught at Harvard and MIT. You can even earn uh, or begin to earn your graduate level study in supply chain management all online through edX in a program at MIT called the MicroMasters program. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's how, and look, it, it makes cool. it available more widely and at a lower mm-hmm. price point, mm-hmm. right? So this is how things are starting to shake up, but it's not just, it's not just ongoing education. Let me ask you guys a question. When was the last time you bought a product that did not come with an owner's manual, right? If you didn't, you're usually directed where? To their website, right? right. Yep. Mm -hmm. Or you're you're told to watch YouTube where you see a Mm -hmm. 13-year-old playing with that product in their parents' (laughs) basement, giving you five ways to use that thing you never would have dreamed of. Well, here's the point, folks, is that if we're not aware of the technologies that are now housing information and knowledge, if we don't know what podcasts are, if we don't know... Uh, how to search for this information, how to maybe enroll in an online class in something that interests me, you know, whatever that interest may be. And the other side effect of that is if I enroll in a class or some kind of learning or get involved in a discussion, I get to meet people who have the same interests that I do. And so I can expand my social network that way. So your first point is very valid. It's changing retirement. We see a desire to work longer. Actually, we believe that what employers are going to see is we're in kind of a midst of a brain drain today in the United States. As the boomers are exiting the workforce, 
the knowledge and the experience that they are taking with them is not easily replaced immediately by the Gen Xers and, and the millennials. And so maybe allowing older workers who want to stay on in a mentor capacity to mm-hmm. kind of teach things, the little things you wouldn't pick up through anything other than experience, we think there's going to be additional opportunities and technology may connect us to those. So I know Ben mentioned it a few minutes ago. So we recently had Chris McLaughlin on the podcast, and that podcast was all about family um, and relationships and retirement. Um, so naturally, family is a big theme in retirement. And to your point, I really like what you said about how this COVID-19 uh, crisis is sort of accelerating, certainly the technology there. Um, can you just talk about how you, you know, tech, and it may be now as we see it live time, um, but how technology is going to uh, impact how, you know, family relationships stay intact throughout retirement? So we know that uh, across the United States, generationally, we're, we have we are having smaller families they are oftentimes are dispersed uh, from a distance standpoint quite a ways. Yet those people are crucially important to us. And one of the things that that is really important is staying a part of the family agenda, mm. right? We have, uh, we have several examples of technology companies, uh, one in particular that's putting technology in the hands of seniors who are in care communities. And one of the things that, that their users say is, you know, just to know that somebody cares that you got up in the morning, right? To hear what you're planning today, yeah. the casual conversations yeah. that, you know, we get cut off from sometimes uh, are really important. And so, you know, the, the FaceTimes or FaceTime, Facebook, I mean, I always use my mother as an example. My mom lives in suburban Philadelphia still. My daughter graduated from the University of Tennessee in Knoxville last year. Mm. My mom had never visited Knoxville, Tennessee, Mm. but through the magic of Skype and FaceTime, she met my daughter's roommates, her boyfriend toward the campus, even told her what curtains to put up at the dorm room, right? (laughs) It's not not the big, deep conversations. It's the everyday, Mm. how do we stay apart? of the agenda of the people who care for us. And in terms of this current crisis, I think it is accelerating Mm. things. You know, I always meet people who, you know, if I were to give a presentation to 30 or 40 people at a a pop, I could tell you there's at least two people in the room that say smartphones may be fine for you, but I I still carry my flip phone. Thank you very much. Almost like a badge of honor. (laughs) Well, you know, I think, you know, perhaps what we're going through now exposes some of the weaknesses. And what I always say is, if you're not at least aware, you may you don't have to become a power user of technology, hmm. but if you're not aware of what technology the people who you care about are using to hmm. communicate, to transport, and transact, you run the risk of increasing the chances of isolation as you age. Yeah. And so, you know, whatever those technologies may be, and you know, I'm a great test study because I'm not really that great with tech. I know what they do, but I, I ask my kids all the time. Look, nobody under 40 understands Snapchat. I don't care. <laughs> you know, so just understand what is it? How do you use it? I can still look at it and say, I'm not ready for that yet. But the technologies that we are using to communicate, it's important mm. and it's keeping families connected. Yeah. And, and we've heard that too, because it's, it's all about, you know, if you're looking to connect to the younger generation and sometimes the younger generation is maybe they're just too young to even know to invest back 
or or maybe it's hey it's this uh, next generation they're very busy in their career or studies and again they don't have time too but maybe if you're in retirement and you do have time here that you can invest in these technologies to learn them you know maybe it is hey i can take um i can find an hour or two hours or three hours to practice snapchat right and and that's a way that i can connect with my grandchild that only she and i have right and it's the, it's 30 seconds right that we share but as you said it's all about sharing your day a little bit and not i have to go travel to them and spend a week in their face while they're feeling smothered by grim grandmother and grandfather here right. Right? Well, yeah yeah maybe you've heard the, the maybe you've heard someone say you know this generation they just don't communicate right that well i we actually would argue they're probably the most communicative of any generation they just do it differently, differently. Mm-hmm. now i'm not going to tell you that they would not benefit from some of the interpersonal skills that maybe older generations could share with them but again until we understand their communication modes imparting some of what we know may not be possible. Bridging that gap will be difficult. Mm -hmm. But yeah, like you said, think of it as an investment, right? You're investing in your children and grandchildren uh, for your own benefit, right? Mm -hmm. And so, uh, yeah, we're we're very encouraged. I mean, the, the, the adoption rate on some of these technologies is advancing pretty quickly, largely now because of necessity, right? Um, And I think it does benefit us to at least explore and understand what these technologies do. So, John, I want to rotate a little bit here because I want to keep going on technology and keep hitting this theme because mobility is one you talked about is in terms of kind of having that question about how will I get an ice cream cone, right? Mm -hmm. So mobility is probably, it feels like in Maine anyway, and I I don't know if I can kind of quantitative rank them, but it feels like mobility is one of the most crucial themes in Maine. Right, because we just have so many miles between neighbors and all the things we ex- we explained. So can you talk about how technology is going to impact our mobility as we age, right? Sure. And, and then how is it going to allow us to have more independence for longer? Because I think that's something we all kind of concern about is, you know, I just get less and less in, in keeping up with things. But what I don't realize is maybe is you, you kind of made the point earlier is that now I'm sacrificing independence because I'm not staying relevant on technology. Mm-hmm. Right. Right. So, yeah, when it comes to mobility, you know, a lot of people are like, well, I don't have to worry about driving. I'll just wait for my Google card to take me wherever I need to go. Right. <laughs> I will share with you that the uh, some of the top researchers at the MIT Age Lab who actually are working on autonomous driving and that kind of thing. Uh, you know, some of them believe that it's going to be a very long time until we mm-hmm. see that technology coming to a road near you for a whole gamut of reasons. I even think about interim technologies like Uber and Lyft. I imagine that Uber and Lyft, although probably available in parts of Maine, probably are unavailable in other parts. Mm-hmm. But here's what I'll tell you today. The last statistic I saw that said if I were to, if I were to ask you all what percentage of Americans over age 65 have ever taken a ride in an Uber or a Lyft rideshare vehicle, what would you say? 20%, what would you guess? Probably. 20%? Yeah. 10. Lower, yeah. Probably 10. So I'll tell you, yeah, that's very good guesses. So I'll tell you how rapidly it's changing. In 2016, the number was apparently 4%, only 4% of Americans. In 2019, the last number I saw said 13%. That means 87% of Americans over age 65 have never taken a ride in an Uber or a Lyft ride sharing service. Hmm. And look, again, I always like to use my personal examples, but let's take my mom again. 
My mom got her first iPhone a couple of years ago. I say, mom, I've got a great idea. Download this Uber app, right? And the first thing you're going to do is load in all of your personal credit card information. But wait, it gets better. That's going to allow you to get into a car with a guy you don't know to drive you to a place where you don't know where you're going. No way. (laughs) But this is the important part about technology is and maybe some of your listeners are more advanced in using technology and have technologies that maybe they do like to use Uber. It's mm-hmm. one thing to tell someone about Uber. It's another thing to get in an Uber car with someone. Show them how you did it. How much mm-hmm. does it cost? Talk to the driver, right? Have the, have the driver tell how they rate you in the car as well. You know, when we think about how this works for people, how that when they learn through that experience, they may, they may decide or may not decide this is something I want to take up. And my gosh, if they, if they understand what a technology like this may be able to do for them in terms of liberating them, all of a sudden it it can become a regular part. Maybe they're not going to take it by themselves, but maybe if they can get a group of people that say, yeah, let's go together. Let's, you know, so on and so forth. So we see transportation and mobility changing quite rapidly. And I will tell you, the other thing that I think people have to think about is beyond the transportation question, it's accessibility, right? Mm. Especially as we age. So I know that there are times in all of our lives, usually between the ages of 40 and 55, where we say, I can't wait because you know what I'm going to do when I retire? I am going to move to the middle of Maine Mm. and I'm going to build a log cabin. And we're going to have candlelight and I'm going to build a wood fire and we're going to be good. It sounds good, but it doesn't always work that way, especially as we age. When I say accessibility, how close are the nearest medical services to your home, right? Mm -hmm. Doctors and specialists that you may need to access. How about grocery stores or the ability to have things delivered to the home, right? That you, that may become necessities when it gets harder for us to get out Mm -hmm. because this is where technologies, again, the current crisis, it's not just about how we get to places. It's about how things get to us, right? The grub hubs and the, and the door dashes Mm -hmm. and the Amazons and the, you name it, that can make things available to us at a fingertip that may not even be available in our local locale understanding what these services are and what they do, but also understanding how available are they in the communities where you intend to age Mm -hmm. is really, really important. And beyond all that, I will also tell you the availability of not just necessities, but the things that we do for fun. Dr. Coughlin at MIT has shared with me that the fastest growing populations of Americans age 65 plus are really springing up around college and university environments. Right. They have lots of young people, which keep thing, keeps things interesting. Mm-hmm. But look what else they have. They have education. They have culture. But what else do they offer? Oh, healthcare! Right. Oftentimes teaching hospitals or cutting yeah. edge therapies. And they offer, if not better developed systems of transportation, public transportation. They often offer walkable access to many of the things we desire. Restaurants and pubs and movie theaters. And, you know, so, again, I'm going to go back to saying at some point we'll get this COVID thing figured out. Yeah. And people are going to want to go back and do those things socially that are fun. And one of the things we do have to think about as we age is how will I access those things if they're not available to me by driving? Yeah. yeah and I think that's a really key point, John, because again, the colleges is like, we have, a, it feels like a lot of colleges and universities in the state of Maine relative to population. And, um, and, and so that seems like a really neat theme kind of going forward. And what you said as well as, is what services are available to me? Cause you know, in Northern Maine, we struggle with this a lot of like, hey, I want to sign up for HelloFresh. Well, 
because the nearest distribution areas, I think like New Hampshire or Boston, well, the, the packaging and the, how they, how they kind of dry freeze things and dry refrigerate things uh-huh. and ship them to you, it would be too far for it to get to you. So uh, they can't do certain grocery delivery parts. Yeah. So it's like these things are coming, right? And, and right. There's, some, there's some services as they scale up and scale down that they're accessible. But it is changing a lot. And the more you're kind of going, yeah, I, I tried it. I didn't like it. But I can see in the future how I might want to rely on that more, or if it if there's more distribution centers, I can use that more. Well, at least understand kind of what the environment is, wherever it is you're intending to live, right? So yes. if, if I say to myself in Pennsylvania, I can't wait till I retire because I'm going to move to Maine, but I have no idea that these services aren't available to me, right. that may put a crimp in what I was thinking versus if I've spent a lot of time up there, I've lived up there for a period of time, maybe I've long-term rented or whatever, I can understand whether that's something that I can deal with or not. I mean, that's it's really part of the planning process. Absolutely. And you touched on it a little bit, but talking about how people want to stay in their home as long as possible, right? And so how technology, how can technology help people achieve that? Um, certainly, we've talked about some technology that's maybe coming forth, but what's available now to help people age in their homes as long as possible? Yeah, it's a great question, Abby. And, and actually, uh, MIT is doing some research on technology adoption as a result of this crisis. And what you're seeing is things like smart speakers, the Alexas mm-hmm. and things like that are becoming uh, one of the top things that are coming in. Some security related things like the ring doorbells mm-hmm. and the Nest thermostats and things like that. I would answer that in a twofold manner. One is that we want things that make things more convenient and comfortable, right? So that the connected home, if you will, that that links my thermostat with, I always joke, I say my thermostat with my toaster, with my toilet, with my car, with, you know, so everything's kind of monitored. But, you know, there's there's a thin line between cool and creepy when it comes to home monitoring, right? Do I really want someone or a technology to know when I'm coming and going and so on and so forth? But let me point this out to you. Let's say I'm getting a little bit older, I'm living by myself, and somehow my home may be able to detect whether or not there was movement in my home for the last Mm -hmm. day or however many hours. And if there isn't, it can alert someone to try to check in with me, right? Mm -hmm. You know, some people, especially younger people will say, oh, that's really creepy that, you know, somebody's kind of watching everything you're doing. But if the trade-off was that in in exchange for a floor or a sensor system or a countertop system that could sense my routine. In fact, one of the ways that we can anticipate a coming medical event is a change in the daily routine. Hmm. You know, mom always makes coffee at 7 a.m. Well, now it's 10 a.m., it's 10.30, it's 11 a.m. Hey, maybe mom decided to sleep in, that's fine. But at least someone is kind of cued in to say, Maybe we should check and see if everything's okay, yeah. right? So if if by monitoring, we're able to stay in our home for a little bit longer, then I think that's really a good thing. And I can share with you uh, probably one of the most important research projects going on at the MIT Age Lab right now is on this idea of uh, putting together a home consortium, right? How does COVID-19 change the home in terms of being the hub of service delivery and security. And Hmm. so in the future, you know, if I do need care of some type, 
what is the potential of getting healthcare services delivered to my door? Think of it like a like a Grubhub for medical services, right? Where yeah. we'd have trained professionals who would be accessible to us when we needed them, mm-hmm. or delivery of medications, so on and so forth. Like, how does this all change in the future around kind of the importance? We've always heard the home is my castle, but really the home is the hub, especially when you know when we just went through this period of saying, hey you know, isolation might be the best thing for a while. If this were to happen again in the future, will services be available to help us with that? But beyond all that, I think the really interesting areas are uh, areas of robotics. I mean, may- maybe some of your listeners have these things like the the Roomba vacuum cleaners, mm-hmm. for example, right? Yeah. I love them. I'll tell you. I, <laughs> but not only that, I'll tell you who loves it more is my mom. Yeah. My mom is a clean freak. She would sweep the, the the house twice a day. But now no longer is she getting down on hands and knees and getting back up again, right? By the way, minimizing fall risk to make sure she's sweeping under end tables, furniture. She just sets that thing off and away it goes, yeah, right? Or uh, I actually have a, a, a one of these robots, I think it's made by the same company, that actually cleans the gutters on my house. It, it's It's amazing. Look, it hasn't. I want one that climbs the downspout and puts itself in, but <laughs> I haven't seen that one yet. But I only have to move the ladder. I put the ladder up once, put it in the downspout, and away it goes. So, hmm. you know, technology, sometimes when we talk about robotics, people think danger Will Robinson type robots, right? <laughs> Not talking about them, talking about robotics that are meant to do specific things around the home, which again may make the home more livable and safer for us in the future. Hmm. So I'm going to change gears completely on you, John, here. (laughs) So one of the uh, wrap-up questions we like to ask all of our guests, so naturally the name of the podcast is Retirement Success in Maine. I know you're not in Maine, but hey, you've talked about maybe moving to Maine here. Um, Yeah. (laughs) What do you you see as a successful retirement for yourself? Um, You know, that bucket list reach, you know, what what do you envision your, your successful retirement being? So I think it really revolves around purpose. Right. So maintaining whatever that purpose is, it's probably going to be through a new venue. I don't I don't see myself discontinuing working. Um, I will work. It may not be in the same form or fashion in which I work today. It may be for a charitable organization for a cause Mm -hmm. that I believe in. I want to be somewhere where my family is, uh, you know, is, is. if not located near, at least there's a desire to come visit, right? Mm-hmm. So I told you all about our home that that we looked at. And we said it's not going to service well. Well, we actually did make a decision on the, the next step. We bought a home in North Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, awesome. which is where I'm broadcasting to you from today. And the main reason was in terms of our family, we've been coming here for 30 years, yeah. right? And so we've gotten to experience. We did a lot of camping here. We, you know, before we ever came, and we kind of knew exactly where we would want to be because mm-hmm. of accessibility issues. And uh, and our kids kind of grew up here in the summers. And mm-hmm. so they love coming here. Yeah. So I think it marries, for me, it marries purpose with family, with faith, kind of creating, you know, kind of that thing that I think I've been called to do, why I'm on earth to help other people with. Mm-hmm. Um, if I can maintain that, no matter what my physical abilities, and this is, I think, another important lesson that I learned from the folks at the Age Lab. Look, I love golf, but if you play golf like me, golf is more of a sentence than a retirement, <laughs> right? So uh, I'll enjoy that. But, but, but you know, kind of what they taught us is, 
you really need to take a look at those things that bring joy each and every day. And Mm -hmm. a lot of times what I see is people who retire will say, you know what I'm going to do? I am, I'm going to golf. I love golf. I'm going to golf for the forever, like four or five days a week. Mm -hmm. And they'll do that. But after a while it starts to become boring. Mm -hmm. Right. And the other thing that I see is that they've only planned for that very next step. It's like golf was going to be everything they were going to do. Well, let's say something happens, unfortunately, or physically, you're not able to golf Mm. any longer. Well, then what replaces that, right? Mm -hmm. Instead of saying, well, that's it. I had always planned on this and that's the end. I always want to be able to contribute, right? Until I'm literally physically not able to any longer. And I think that's one thing I, I would say to you all is that, you know, we need to think beyond just what's going to happen next. We, mm. we want to put some thought into what that driving purpose is. For me, that's a that's a successful retirement in terms of feeling fulfilled. John, I, those are really great answers. And especially with um, kind of having a geography with a gravitational pull to it. Uh-huh. Right. And, and that's actually what is kind of been a weird outcome for us doing this podcast and this show is that uh, probably about one third to to 40% of our listenership is outside the state of Maine. Uh And and we hear from people that are listening and they go, actually, because of what you just said about your Myrtle Beach experience, I've summered in Maine. I have family that live there. I've spent a lot of my best memories are about being in the state of Maine and enjoying the seasons there. Mm-hmm. And, and that's something where there's this pull to it, and which is funny because people are going, hey, I want to I go back and I want to retire to it. So there's kind of this whole purpose around, hey, those, those memories and experiences I want to continue on and enjoy with, with the people I love the most. So yeah. kudos to you for that because that's um, I, I hear from people that are really well prepared and thought out. That's something I, I really love. But yeah. and, and be realistic, right? To say, look, my wife and I have talked about this is probably not our next, our last stop, mm-hmm. right? We may, may need to be looking at a at a different kind of area of living. Maybe we'll always be able to hopefully maintain a home here that the kids could use. And maybe we're coming to visit them at some point in the future. Right. Right. Yeah. uh, But, you know, there may be a time when we need to relocate again to a different kind of living or we need access to a different kind of healthcare system or something like that. So we have to remain open. Right. And uh, I'll sum it up this way, guys, and I'm sure you've seen this before. And this kind of drives what I think about when we interact with financial advisors and clients is that if, if we weren't talking about any of this today, if all of us had a jigsaw puzzle in front of us and our job was to put the jigsaw puzzle together, what would the most important first step be? You know what most people tell me? They'll say corners, mm-hmm. straight edges. Sometimes they're like, that's a trick question. You got to flip the pieces over, right? All those are all those are important first steps, but not the most important first step, which is look at the, look at the picture. picture. Yeah, yeah, you got to look at the picture on the box, right? Uh, and so until we look at the picture on the box, many people have done a pretty good job collecting pieces along life's way, right? We have the 401k plan that's still with the employer we haven't worked with in 20 years. And we have the IRAs down the bank where our ex-brother-in-law was going to be an advisor sometime. We got all these pieces all <laughs> over the place, but we never take the time to think about what the picture on our box looks like. And then we don't take the time to sit with someone and talk about what's the most efficient way for all these pieces to fit together. Maybe we don't have the right pieces, mm. right? Or maybe we do. They just need to fit together a different way. And that's really what I encourage people to do because, you know, or to, to think about it because the 
the interesting thing with a jigsaw puzzle is that the picture is static, right? Mm -hmm. But in life, we know the picture changes all the time. Mm -hmm. So even with people who have reviewed their financial plan or take a look at that picture, it's kind of like, you know, how they tell you, look at your will and estate plan every so many years to make sure it's everything's still, you know, on the up and up. I would say the same thing about the picture on your box. You need yeah. to revisit it from time to time because there are things that have happened that we just forget to talk to our advisors about that that are meaningful and, and make a big difference. So I think mm -hmm. what you're all doing is great. And I, I just it's really a pleasure to to participate in the conversation today. Well, and perfectly stated because I, I love anytime you can kind of create analogies like that and visualizations because, again, I think that's really what this show is about is, is visualizing retirement, helping people kind of look at something and saying, all right, that's how you do it. Oh, okay. I, or here's something I can take away that I can apply back. So again, for, for us, it's, it's a real pleasure to have you on today, John, uh, to, to kind of have technology be the theme, but I, I think we covered so much more in terms of the retirement side and, and what challenges people are facing. So thank you so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks, Ben Curtis and Abby. I really appreciated the time. All right, take care. So today I, I thought John did a really great job on our on our show. So in, for those that don't know, I know we gave a little bit of an intro to John Deal um, in his role with strategic markets for Hartford Funds, but the, but he really oversees that relationship between the research that MIT Age Lab is producing mm -hmm. to kind of this uh, how financial products and, and innovation is happening at Hartford Funds. So kind of some really neat outtakes. And, and one of the things that maybe for our listeners that don't know, um, he's, he's pretty widely quoted on the Wall Street Journal, financial planning on Wall Street, but also on TV. So you might, might have seen him on CNBC or Bloomberg Television. So really great to bring a national perspective yeah. of somebody that's hearing the research and hearing how people are struggling to technology uh, yeah. today. So that, that was one thing I was really appreciative of that to get somebody like John on and have him spend uh, his time sharing these these outtakes, these viewpoints, these uh, bits of knowledge with us is, is it's just meaningful to our practice, but also to our clients and our listeners out there too. So yeah. um, one thing we always like to do is in our wrap up was to get some lessons here. I'll have Abby uh, bat lead off here in terms of uh, Abby, what did you take away from our talk with John today? When he was talking about mobility and how people over 65 are in retirement, have to sometimes look at mobility differently and use technology in ways to help them be possibly more mobile when they don't have a driver's license, maybe. Mm -hmm. um, he brought up Uber and Lyft. And just on a personal note, when my grandfather couldn't drive because of a broken hip, my husband and I took him on an Uber ride to show him how to use it. So we helped him download the app um, to help get him to a doctor's appointments if, you know, some of us couldn't make it. And so he did actually take Uber a few times soon from the doctor's appointments by himself. And he has always had an iPhone. He always FaceTimes with us. So I would say him being at the forefront of this technology has helped us stay in touch with him even more. And it's helped him maintain some level of independence throughout the whole thing. So yeah. um, I like that he brought that up because I know personally, it's been really helpful for our family. So, but it's yeah. really tough though, is to kind of raise your hand and say, Hey, I'm vulnerable. Yeah. I don't know technology, right? Is I need help. So Abby and Casey, would you mind taking, you know, a 30 minute ride with me to my doctors or even just down the street with Uber yeah. showing me how to do this. So I don't mess it up because I'm scared of doing this wrong. And as John said, you're entering a strange car with a strange person. <laughs> like, didn't they tell you not to do that growing up? Like that's how you get 
killed. <laughs> so exactly, exactly. It, it feels very counterculture to everything you're kind of taught as you're growing up. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Um, but it ended up being really good for him because when he wasn't able to drive, he was able to, you know, go where he wanted to go when he wanted to without necessarily relying so heavily on just getting rides from us when our schedule allowed. So and he felt safe. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, right. He felt very safe. I mean, we are in Portland, Maine, but still, yeah, he <laughs> felt very safe. He made sure that the, you know, the license plate on the app matched the license plate of the car that he was getting into. And yeah, I mean, it all worked out well. But yeah, it was, nice. it was a good. It was nice that he brought it up because it is right. helpful. So, Curtis, from your side, so uh, what was something that you took away from our conversation with John that that you took uh, personally to be meaningful? Yeah, um, I just I thought it was really uh, great and interesting. Kind of the the follow up this episode or this conversation is to a previous episode with Chris McLaughlin, and I know we've talked about Chris's episode a lot here. So uh, go listen. Um, so <laughs> the the word of the the word of the week I feel like has been intentionality. You know, and and John brought it up when he was talking about kind of staying social in your relationships, both with family and socially, um, kind of to overarching theme to avoid isolation. And it's, you know, make sure you know who you're you're going to hang out with and that, you know, as you age and get older, you know, he talked about the carpenter that you've known for 30 years or the person you have coffee with every day. It's, you know, as you age and, and they age with you, it's easy for things to drop off, whether it's you or your friends or or whatever, as you become immobile or anything. So just kind of investing in those relationships and those activities to make sure that you are able to do them and interact as long as possible. I thought that was a really important piece. Again, I, I like that a lot too, right? Is mm-hmm. is like having kind of this design behind, well, who am I spending time with? And I really want to spend time with you as this part of my relationship or grandchild or family member or friend or neighbor. Mm-hmm. And, but I need to think about how I can continue to have that relationship. Yeah. So again, the intentionality is a, a big piece. What I, what I really liked, and, and maybe this is a little more personally selfish for me here in terms of our meetings with our clients, but when we're sitting down with folks and, and sometimes it's, it's hard to broach these topics because you say, Hey, well, where do you want to be in retirement? And they go, well, of course I want to be in my home. Right. right. And of course, I, I that's where I've always been. So it just gets dismissed. Mm-hmm. So how can you frame things in a way that allows people to get to the heart of the issue, but also have them consider the ramifications of the decisions without dismissing? Right. Right. That they yeah. really take a moment and think about it. So that's why I really like the whole the three question dynamic on visualizing a successful retirement. Right. Is mm-hmm. we'll change my light bulbs. Right. Again, that's a, that was a big conversation we had. How will I get an ice cream cone? And by the way, that's tough too, good man, because ice cream cones are not available all year round. So it's, that's tougher. Yeah, two uh, weeks to get short one. Short window. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Especially now with COVID, right? Yeah. And who will I have lunch with? So I know Curtis, you talked about the intentionality around kind of people. But again, having those as questions, right, is is asking that question to start. And that's going to start with a ha-ha, like, oh, yeah, well, of course, I just go eat at the local, you know, cafe. Mm-hmm. Okay, but wh- what does it look like at 85? Right. What does it look like at 92 when you can't drive anymore? Mm-hmm. And and how far does it do you go to that cafe? Is it 40 minutes to go to your favorite spot for that coffee and tea with your friends? Yeah. Whatever. Uh, so I think those are really important questions and they're framed in a way. And again, I, I also throw in there too, in terms of the puzzle is I, I think that the puzzle visualization he had, there was really great too of, of putting them together and also going, Hey, 
sometimes I got to take apart the puzzle and put it back together because my life has changed there too. Yeah. And again, that was, I think that was a really great thing uh, to kind of look at. So want to, want to thank you all for obviously for tuning in today. Um, we are at episode number two, 20. zero, 20. 20. <laughs> so and one thing that john wanted to stress to us too is hey uh that mit age lab hartford funds uh collaboration lots of great materials mm. and workbooks yep. so you don't have to be a client of ours you know we we use some of this with our clients but you could be anybody we will put the links to all of those resources on our blog so if you go to blog.guidancepointllc.com backslash 2020 20 and you can uh, find all those resources, the transcription, uh, the audio here. And as always, get in contact with us. Uh, again, we're at Guidance Point Advisors. You can go to our website. Our phone numbers and contact info is right there underneath our team. So if you want to reach out, love to hear feedback from you if you found this helpful. But always appreciate you tuning in. Uh, we're really lucky to be in front of you. And, and thank you so much for your attention. Uh, have a great day, guys. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, you've just listened to an information-filled episode of the Retirement Success in Maine podcast. While this show is about finding more ways to improve your retirement happiness, Guidance Point Advisors' mission is to help our clients create a fulfilling retirement. We do financial planning so that people can enjoy retirement and align their monetary resources to their goals. If you're wondering about your own personal success, we invite you to reach out to us to schedule a 45-minute listening session. Our advisors will have a conversation with you about your goals, your frustrations, and your problems. Make sure you check out Guidance Point Advisors on our blog, Facebook, and LinkedIn. And you can always check out more episodes of this podcast on iTunes and Spotify. And of course, keep on finding your retirement success.